Well, it is a joy to be here. And like Derek said, it's neat to see what God has begun and what he continues to do here at Common Ground. Um, we always enjoy coming and, and seeing kids that have been to camp. Uh, we actually run Cowboys Rest Christian Camp, or we did. And we're sort of phasing out of that now that I'm old. Yeah. <laughs> but um, as we uh, think about um, being here, it's always a joy to come and, and to hear and to see God lead. And as Paul's led in uh, worship and um, in the past, as the, the team has come together, it's always been fun to come and worship. Um, not so much fun today. You know, I'm on this side instead of that side looking up, but uh, we are excited, and it's always a joy to uh, come, and when Derek said, why don't you come and share with us, you know, this was a couple, uh, almost a month ago, I said, great, anticipating a Christmas message, you know, which is always a great time of year to, to come together and uh, sing the songs that uh, a lot of us grew up with, um, and, and, you know, Derek being Derek says, no. Not Christmas. I said, really? You know, I mean, it's only next week. He said, no, we're going to talk about marriage and godly marriage at that. And so I just wanted to uh, uh, fulfill, since he is the boss, you know, uh, to make sure that I, I cover that this morning. And so um, to have a godly marriage, it takes God. Okay, on to Christmas. You know, <laughs> You know, really, when, when we think about that, uh, that statement, most of us would say, well, yeah, duh. You know, we know that to have a godly marriage, or any marriage at that, uh, it takes God. But it really is more than just taking God. Uh, it's letting God be who he wants to be in our marriages or in um, our lives. You know, it's not just a marriage uh, message. Really, today's message is about um, marriage, but it's ultimately our marriage to our Lord Jesus Christ as the, at the marriage feast of the Lamb. And so this morning, if you weren't here last week, Derek talked about what? Okay, good. I didn't think anybody would have got that. <laughs> I even got the app and listened to it twice, and I said, what's he talking? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> But uh, he talked about margin, and I really appreciated uh, the word last week. If you haven't heard it, I'd encourage you to get the podcast, whatever that is. You know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, back in the day, it was get the tape, you know, or, and that was used to be eight track for us old people, you know, but uh, get, the, uh, get the tape. But uh, listen to the podcast. It's a great message talking about what a margin is. Anybody remember what a margin is without looking at your notes? Space for God, ultimately, that's true. But it was that, well, yeah, I had to write it down. I went and listened to it twice just to get the definition. But it was uh, um, the amount available beyond that which is necessary. And we, and we talked about margin, of course, you know, with our new apps and everything that we have, you can always get more margin if you turn your iPad upside, you know, up this way, you get more margin on the side. That isn't really what we're talking about. We try to manufacture our own margins, but it's really having enough time left over that's, uh, to do what God calls us to do. So if you haven't uh, got that message, I would encourage you, uh, get the podcast it's a great opportunity uh, to understand that we need to spend time as a family. We need to spend time in our marriages. We need to devote those times, and especially our time with our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and really, if we, we can't really talk about margins, we can't talk about godly marriages unless we are spending time with the one who really designed marriage, designed our lives to bring glory to his Father. So... Um, get that uh, podcast, listen to it, uh, and then just say, Lord, I need more margin in my life, you know, and so um, Chris and I have been married for 45 years. It's been a, a great opportunity to see God's faithfulness, 
Um, somebody said, well, if you were to uh, encapsulate, you know, 45 years of marriage, and some of you have been married longer than that, you know, I think we'd all agree that there's one word that encapsulates godly marriage, and that's grace. You know, God has been very gracious uh, in our 45 years. He's very gracious to all of us when we are committed to living or striving to live. We haven't been perfect over those 45 years, but uh, to see God's grace being lived out in our marriages. And so uh, we have three adult children, um, all married. We have three uh, grandchildren, one girl and two boys, and anxiously waiting more, but I don't think the kids are as anxious as we are, <laughs> you know, and so, uh, but it's been, a, it's been a, a blessing for Chris and I um, to, in the last three years, to travel abroad with a ministry out of uh, uh, Texas uh, called Shepherd Support and going to Eastern uh, Euro Asia, Asia and uh, having conferences about ministry and marriage. And it's been just amazing to go to third world countries and see people excited about what God's doing in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But marriage is something that we so often overlook in ministry. And so um, the, what drew us to that ministry was their, their motto really is to have a really great marriage. I mean, to have a really great ministry, you need to have a really great marriage because that really is what reflects to the world around us. And so we've had that privilege um, to um, minister and to be ministered to, um, you know, around uh, Ural Asia, whether it was in Thailand or Azerbaijan or um, Georgia, Republic of, uh, we said, well, we're going to Georgia for three weeks. And people said, well, why are you going to Atlanta? You know, that's the Republic of, um, and just watch those people uh, respond to the Word of God, and that's what we want to do today. We want us to just have God's Word presented and to respond to the Holy Spirit as He speaks to our hearts about marriage and really, in more particular, about our relationship with Him. So would you join me in prayer, and we'll get into it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege to come together in a country that uh, allows us that privilege and to uh, open your word, Father, um, help us never to take for granted that privilege. And Father, to uh, open our hearts most of all to you. Father, I pray that as we uh, take this time that you would be our teacher, Father, that he who wrote the book would speak to our hearts and that we'd not just get more head knowledge, but that we'd allow you to um, speak to our hearts this morning. So, Father, we, we're excited about uh, having time, not just a, a little margin of time here, but uh, throughout the, the rest of our time um, on earth to uh, just have margin and spend with you. So, Father, we thank you for this time and commit it to you in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, as, you know, they have all this new technology I'm looking and saying, oh, that's my next point, you know, um, and they have it there and the here, and Tony was saying, okay, we're going to do this and that, and I'm going, well, I don't even need these, really, you know, the notes that we used to have. There was a time when you just opened the Word of God, and, you know, but we don't do that anymore. We're very high tech, and so um, it says that uh, we're having godly marriage, and uh, Genesis 2, 18 through 25, you even have the page number, great job, two and three. <laughs> You know, uh, if, you have the, if you don't have your Bible, I'd encourage you to uh, always take your Bible and to uh, make sure that whoever's speaking isn't just saying what he thinks or she thinks, but that uh, we allow the Word of God to be our guide. And so if you uh, have your Bibles, we're going to uh, look at uh, Genesis chapter 2. If you uh, don't have uh, the Bibles underneath the uh, desk or underneath the seats, um, page 2 and 3, uh, it's the first book in the Bible, so um, second chapter, so it's pretty easy to find, and if you have been to very many marriages, um, or maybe even in your own marriage, you might have uh, had some of this uh, read to you, 
or heard something uh, about some of what we're going to talk about today. And so in Genesis chapter 2, uh, we begin by looking at the first marriage and that um, you know the account is the creation and Adam and, uh, was created and he was told to name all the animals and picking up the account in verse 18 it says, Then the Lord said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord formed every beast in the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and all the, to the birds of the sky and the, uh, every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. On man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh that, uh, at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the, uh, the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to man. And man said, This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of me, out of, out of man. And for this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. And like I said, most of us know the story. It's a beautiful picture of God um, performing um, what man needed most, and that was a woman. And we need to remember that that was God's plan. And so um, the marriage is God's idea. If you're taking notes, you're going to find that um, I like to, I never did like notes that you had in your paper and in the podcast because I always tried to figure out what the answer was going to be before the speaker said what it was going to be, you know, and so I'd finish the message long before he was even done. And then even if he didn't agree with me, he was wrong and I was right. <laughs> so, uh, but if you have your, uh, if you have the app up, uh, that first uh, major point is that marriage is God's idea. It wasn't man's idea. You know, and he, he looked around and he saw that all the animals and all the birds, they had mates, but he didn't have one. And he couldn't do anything about it because he wasn't and we aren't God. Okay, and so God saw the, the situation and he said, I know. He always knew, but uh, sometimes we think that uh, he uh, just, oh, wow, the light came on. He said, he needs a mate. No, God knew all along that he was going to show Adam that he was in need. And that's really an important point. We need to recognize that we are people that have needs. And God saw that need in Adam, and he says, I'll make woman. And so as we uh, looked at the, uh, the marriage and as we read through it, he, uh, you know, the account, God formed um, the woman out of his rib. If you've been to... Uh, Weddings, they say he didn't take it out of, his, out of his foot, that man would tread on her, or take her out of his head that, you know, she would be superior to man, but out of his rib so that they would be side by side. And that's really, you know, uh, an important thing that we sort of, oh, yeah, that's so neat to say that in a, in a marriage or in a, uh, in a ceremony. I think I might even say it in your ceremony. <laughs> but to, uh, to look at that because, to really be honest, Women don't have the privileges that we have in the United States, you know, and uh, that's why um, it was so important when we went overseas that uh, we included the wives. The whole ministry was based on not just pastors, but bringing their wives and the, uh, the men to uh, the pastors together to show the men that they're valuable, you know, ladies. You are a gift. Matter of fact, uh, Ecclesiastes 9 9 says, You're your husband's reward. You know, it's a great text that we can look at. And you're a reward to your husband. And we need men to look at them as that reward that God has given us, as that one that we need. But over there, they were just really just property. You know, and they were the ones who uh, had, one lady had 11 kids. You know, I go, wow. 
you know, and so this is sort of like a second honeymoon for you guys. The ministry pays for everything. They pay a little stipend to just come uh, for a week at a, at a uh, Soviet resort. It's concrete. There's no elevators. It's pretty crazy. Um, they're built in 1921, you know, and the first time we were there, we had uh, cots to sleep on, you know, and uh, we got together, and God blessed, but these people said, well, we've never been on a honeymoon. You know, we've never had a time like this. is just luxury. We have never, you know, had this privilege, and we thought they were staying somewhere else, you know, because we come with our, you know, five-star mentality, and Chris and I said, well, yeah, this is nice. It's sort of like a half a star, you know. <laughs> but to them, it was luxury, you know, and, and to them to recognize that, um, that your spouse is a blessing from God, a reward from God. And he brought her alongside of us that uh, he would have done um, that in his life, in our lives, and given us such a great gift. But we need also to remember that if we uh, look at the text, that God was the one who performed the first marriage. And so, so far, the, the answer to the fill-in is God's. Uh, it was God's idea, and God is the one who uh, performed uh, the first marriage. So when we start uh, filling in those blanks, I want to make that point. The next one's going to be God, too. That is all about God. You know, and we sort of think that it's not. You know, we sort of think that we can get through uh, our marriage and all the struggles without God. And there's so many people that are broken and uh, just going through depression because they thought they could do it themselves. Because that's what we're taught in America. You know, you know uh, when the going gets tough, man up. You know, pull yourself up by your own foot's, uh, bootstraps. You know, I heard that all my life until I was in college. You know, and uh, finally gave my life to Christ because I couldn't do it anymore. You know, and had gone through all the things that uh, uh, the world says to try. But uh, we see that God is the one who per uh, performed the first marriage. He was the one who walked the, uh, Eve down the aisle, if there was an aisle. You know, I mean, there was only three of them there, you know, but it was okay. You know, so God's doing it all. You know, he creates her. He walks her down the aisle. He gives her to... Uh, um, Adam, and then he tells us three essentials of the, of the Christian life. And I think they're really important. I use the word essentials because there's something that we, we hear, but we sometimes don't always do. And he says, for this cause. What cause is that? You know, what do you think the cause is? I think it's for the cause of having a godly marriage. He says, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Well, Adam and Eve didn't have one, you know, but he is writing for us in generations to come. Um, shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so the three essentials of, the, uh, of having a godly marriage is, first of all, we need to leave. And then we need to cleave, and God's purpose is, is to make this new union a oneness that is unique to them. It's not what the world says, but it's what God wants. And so what does it mean to leave? Well, it's pretty, you know, easy to figure out. You just, I left church. I walked out the door, you know, but it's more than just a, a physical leaving. You know, it's easy just to, to walk away from mother and father. Now, a lot of uh, young people these days are, are getting married and, you know, they've had an apartment and they uh, are moving on. For Chris and I, we were at home until we got married. You know, it was pretty cool. You know, mom and dad were still there and uh, they didn't break my plate uh, once I did get married, but um, they, we had to leave. We had to physically leave our households and come together. But it's more than just a leaving that uh, it's an emotional leaving as well. Chris and I were fortunate enough to leave and then leave the state. You know, once we uh, got married, uh, we were going to graduate school down at Arizona State um, and, and Tempe. And so we had this little apartment and 
We didn't call home. Well, she did call home once and wanted to come home. But, <laughs> but her mom was great. She said, no, you can't come home. It's done. You've left. You know, and she said, really? And, uh, and so we had to work it out. You know, but uh, so often we don't leave or leave our friends. You know, that God is doing a new work whenever he brings a couple together. You know, and we need to leave physically and we need to leave emotionally. We need to leave and say, well, mom was always there. Or I could always go in and talk to dad. You know, I, we've done that with our kids, our three adult children. You know, they make some dumb mistakes, and I'd like to tell them, you know, but uh, even when they asked, I don't have that privilege, you know, they make the decisions. We're there to be friends and help them through that. But we need to leave, and then we need to cleave. And that's a great word. You know, I always thought of that as a cleaver, you know, the thing that they cut the chickens with and, you know, hack them in half. That's not what that word means. To leave is, and to cleave is to be cemented to. That Hebrew word is literally not, you know, gorilla glue, you know. But it's, it is the, the fact that we're cemented to our spouse. You know, and it's a beautiful picture of oneness that is God's purpose but we're cemented too. And the tragedy is when divorce happens, have you ever tried to separate cement? It's a ripping and a pouring apart. Yeah, you can finally break apart cement, but it's an effort. And there's a lot of damage done in the process. You know, and God's faithful in that. Don't, don't uh, if you've been there or you know uh, people that have gone through that, They'd be the first to say, yeah, it's tough. But God is bigger than divorce. And God's purpose is marriage. And we're going to see why I believe there's divorce in the world today. But um, we know that once that happened, they left, they, they cleaved together, they became one. Physically, yes. Emotionally, yes. But spiritually. You know, and because we are spiritual beings. If you want to have a great godly marriage, man, be the spiritual leader of your household. Be the one that, as the scriptures talks about, to lead us and to lead your spouses in the direction God will show us. You know, I know that uh, it's tough sometimes to be the spiritual leader. Chris had been a Christian a lot longer than I had when we became, uh, when we got married. And she'd always tell me, she said, well, you're supposed to be the spiritual leader. And I go, yeah, I know. But I never did anything about it, you know. And she said, and then you know, she'd forget about it and not forget about it. She wouldn't say anything about it, and then she'd let me know again. You know, you're supposed to be the spiritual leader. And the more she talked about it, the farther I went, the other way. It wasn't until God says, you know, are you going to be the spiritual leader or not, you know? And then when I became and said yes, I need to do that, then He became and worked us together to be one, you know, and that's God's purpose. Physically, yes. Emotionally, yeah, we draw from each other. We are one, and spiritually, most of all, because we are spiritual beings. So whenever we see, you know, marriages happen, I think we forget and we overlook the fact uh, that I believe the most overlooked aspect of the Christian life is that Satan is always opposed to God's work. You know, and we, we just, for some reason, we just don't relate. We know that intellectually, but we don't really um, realize that practically. But what does verse uh, 1 of chapter 3 say? God's just performed the first marriage, and verse uh, 1 of chapter 3 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than all the animals that uh, God created. Now, I'm not saying that right after they got married, uh, that Satan came in and says, has God said, you know, you shouldn't eat? Oh, he's not stupid. Matter of fact, uh, 1 John says he has all power on planet Earth, 1 John 5, 18. 
And so we, we find ourselves dealing with a source that is greater than we are. You know, and, and Satan comes. There's probably a time when they were out doing what they did. You know, they hadn't sinned yet, so they were enjoying their relationship with one another. And Satan comes maybe in a, in a low time and, and asks Eve, and she says, well, yeah, and, and you know the story of the fall of man. But the point is, is that God is still the one who's on, in control. But Satan is always opposed to anything that God's doing. Is God the one that we should be focusing on in our marriage? You bet. It was his idea. He's the one who can make it all that he wants it to be. And whenever Satan sees that, he is going to be opposed to that. How do we know that? Well, it says so in John, uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. But remember Jesus in uh, John chapter 10, the good shepherd? And he's talking about he is the good shepherd. And when I was a new believer, I was um, always heard about this John 10, 10. It says, I have come to give you life and that life more abundantly. And I go, yeah, I need that. You know, I want to have the abundant life. And that is what the scripture says. I've come to give you life and that life more abundantly. It wasn't until I, you know, recognized the spiritual war that was going on that I recognized that there was a beginning of that verse. It says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come to give them life and that life more abundantly. And so Jesus recognized there's a spiritual battle going on. There always is. But in America today, we don't recognize that. We don't recognize that there is a spiritual battle. And even in, with our Judeo-Christian ethic having been, you know, lessened over the, over the years, you know, we forget that we're in a spiritual battle. And we recognize that if we did, we'd be a lot bolder in our relationship. When we were in Thailand and... Um, the Thailandese are, uh, I guess that's how you'd say it, are very proud, not the Christians, but of Bangkok. You know, before we went to Chiang Mai where the uh, uh, conference was. And you went around and you saw that uh, they have all these gold-laden temples. You know, and most anywhere in the world. But just, it was so uh, apparent to us that it was all demonic worship. And that's who they worship. And all, all their temples were held up by the seven demons that, you know, uh, and it was beautiful, I guess, but it was just really dark. You know, it was really hard, you know, but the, the Christians recognized that there's a spiritual battle going on. Do you know that there's a spiritual war going on? It's a war for our souls. It's a war for our kids. It's a war to destroy marriages. And Satan, that's his whole purpose there in John 10.10. 10, he says, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. You know, and so spiritual warfare is that aspect, I think, of the Christian life that is overlooked. I heard a story, and, and I liked it because so often we think when we're going through hard times in our marriages, it sort of goes like this. A bank robber uh, went in, and um, he robbed a bank, pulled a gun, told the teller, give me all your money. The teller gives him all the money, and people, you know, are there that's, you know, going on right now. And they, um, the bank robber looks at the uh, teller, and she gives him her money. He's walking out the uh, door, and he asks the first guy, he says, did you see me rob that bank? He says, yes, I did. And he goes, bang, shoots him dead. It's just, it's just like that. And so the... Uh, he was walking by the next guy who started looking at him, and he said, did you see me rob that bank? He said, yes, I did. And he goes, bang, shot him dead. And so he's walking out just about to the door, and the last guy started looking at him. He says, did you see me rob that bank? He said, no, but my wife did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and so often we think that the enemy is our spouse. People, our spouses aren't our enemy. You know, it's the enemy of our soul that allows sometimes those difficulties to come flooding in. Where do they come from? From Satan. 
and this demonic force or my own desires, you know, but our spouses are not our enemies. They're the ones that God has put alongside of us to get us through this life. And so if we really are cognizant that we're in a spiritual battle, and we are, then we need to have a strategy. So what is your strategy for the spiritual war that you guys are all shaking their heads, you know, uh, saying, yeah, we're in a spiritual war. What's your strategy? Yes, sir. Okay. That, that's a great part of it, you know, to put on the armor of Christ, uh, Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, so I'm going to be asking questions, so you don't, you know, you don't want to be asked. Just keep looking at me. I always look at the people that aren't asking, like Derek. He's, you know, he's sort of looking around. At, no. <laughs> but uh, seriously, you're right. We're supposed to put on the armor of God. But I think before we put on the armor of God, we need to know a little bit about the one who's opposed to us. You know, matter of fact, that's what Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians, um, uh, 2 Corinthians 2.11. He says this, that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not to be ignorant of his schemes. Okay, so we need to recognize we're in a spiritual battle. Okay, and if we're in a spiritual battle, we need to recognize that the enemy has a plan. He has a great plan. As a matter of fact, it's not just one plan. He uses the plural there. It says we has, we're not to be ignorant of his schemes. Okay? So what are some of the ways that Satan comes to us? Anybody? Okay, temptation. You know, and uh, we, it doesn't really say that in the scriptures. But uh, in James, that Satan tempts us, we know that he does, because God is not the author of temptation in James chapter 4. Da, 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 da. James chapter 1, verse 13. I had it written down, so. <laughs> in 113, it says that, you know, when, when we're tempted, let us not say that God is tempting us, for God cannot be tempted, nor is he the tempter of anyone. So if God's not the tempter, who is? the enemy of our soul, Satan is. So he comes as a tempter, okay? He comes in, and when I'm tempted, you know, it's not because, and sometimes it's just my flesh, you know, and, uh, and we need to recognize that. But God doesn't tempt us. The enemy uses temptation to keep us from being all that we want to be in our marriage. What about 1 Peter 5.8? Anybody know what it says? It says that, um, what does it say? Do you know what it I, I thought I did. <laughs> it says that he comes as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Is that uh, you're, you're um, Derek, you're there. Sober-minded, you Sober yes. And your adversary, the devil, is, roaring, is uh, going around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so we need to recognize that he has schemes, he has plans. It'd be great if he's just a roaring lion, you know, then we could walk around with our pith helmet and, you know, our gun to shoot that roaring lion. But he also comes as an angel of light. Wow. You know, one of his schemes is that he'll come alongside and it sounds good. You know, and a matter of fact, that's what he says in uh, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that we... Um, the uh, adversary, he is an angel of light. He comes in and it sounds good. All of false doctrine is based on a little bit of truth. So we can't just, we're just waiting for him to come as a roaring lion. Somebody can come alongside and says, well, did you know that uh, you don't really have to do that? That the Bible, that's what he said to Eve, wasn't it, in the garden? Has God really said that? You know, and he causes doubt. And so he comes as an angel of light. He comes as a tempter. He comes as an accuser of the brethren. When I first became a believer, nobody had discipled me, and maybe that's why I'm uh, so big on discipleship. When I got uh, saved, I didn't even know I got saved. You know, uh, God moved on my heart, and um, I think it was the first time I cried in, in, uh, since I was a little boy. And, and God, I believe that moment, and Later on, I recognized that I needed Christ in my life, and I asked him to come in. But nobody told me how many times you get saved. Anybody answer that? Once. 
Good job, Alex. You know, we're, we're saved once, you know, and that's it. So when I would uh, sin, because I did and I do, you know, that I'd figure I'd have to get saved all over again. You know, and so I'd, I'd get saved again and again and again. And pretty soon Satan would come along and he'd accuse me. He says, and you call yourself a Christian and you're doing that? And I would go, boy, he's right. What? And so I said, God, if you could forgive me one more time, I'll never do that again. I had a, I had a drinking problem in college, you know, and so, you know, I'd go out and uh, that's what we did, you know. Um, and so, um, or I'd pray before I got saved, Lord, don't let me put in jail tonight. You know, that's, I mean, that's how we play with God. But, you know, just to say, God, you know, and, and Satan would come alongside and he would accuse us. And so we need to recognize that he's accuser of the brethren, uh, brethren Revelation 12, 11. He is also um, the author of confusion. You know, in a marriage, when there's confusion and making a decision, we can be sure that the enemy's throwing stuff at both partners or in our lives. And whenever there is confusion, it says God is not the author of confusion. If he isn't, then who is? The tempter, the one that comes out and uh, accuses us. And so we need to recognize 1 Corinthians 14, 33. And then we need to remember, too, that he is a murderer and a liar. John 8, 44. He's a murderer and a liar. He's the father of lies. And wherever there isn't any truth... We need to recognize that Satan is there throwing those darts, trying to keep us from being who God wants us to be in our marriage and as individuals, you know. And so we need to grab a hold. We're in a spiritual war, people, and we need to recognize that we have a God who is bigger than the spiritual war. Don't get discouraged. You know, he said, man, I, I think it's pretty exciting when I get to the place and I said, I can't. And God says, great. I never expected you to, you know, when are you going to quit, you know, and, and I give it up to him because in 1 John 4, 4, he says, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. So we have a God who just doesn't say, okay, go out and perform, you know, do your thing. But we have a God who lives within us, who is greater than he that is in the world. And so we find that um, when we're in the battle, and this is this was a great verse in First Samuel seventeen forty seven. Does that ring a bell with anybody? First Samuel seventeen. He was only a boy named David, only a babbling brook, only a boy named David. Five little stones he took. One little stone went in the sling. You get in the picture, and the sling went round and round. One word prayer went up to God, and the giant fell right down. Remember what David said to Goliath when he uh, ran into the battle? He says, you come to me with swords and spears. I come to you in the name of the living God. The battle belongs to the Lord. Boy, that's such a great picture. The battle belongs to the Lord. Satan is a defeated foe. He cannot stand before God. Okay? But he sure plays havoc in my life when I let him. And so we need to recognize that we have a God who is, who is bigger than um, the, the one who's against us. And then as our brother said, uh, once we know that he is out there with the schemes that have come to destroy, to kill and destroy our marriages or our lives, that we need to put on the whole armor of God. And I would encourage you, if you uh, get into Ephesians chapter 6, and that's a beautiful place where it says we do not wrestle against, wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Um, and so when we recognize that, we need to put on the whole armor of God. 6.13 uh, says, um, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to resist the, in the evil day, and having done everything to resist, stand firm. And then he gives the... Um, the armor of God. And he begins by talking about the, uh, the belt of truth, the, the uh, uh, shodding your feet with the gospel. And you know the, the elements, the helmet of salvation, the, um, the breastplate of righteousness, 
the sword of the spirit, the field, shield of faith. And all of those are a characteristic that is, uh, and this would be a great study to do with your kids or to do with your, on yourself or you and your wife, sitting down and say, the, Bob said that those are all an attribute of God. You know, can you, where he says to uh, put on the, uh, I mean, gird yourself with truth. There's a verse somewhere between the two covers. Look it up. You know, that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So I've given you one out of six. You know, and go and find those verses and say, that is really what Paul is saying. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so once we have the armor of God on, what does he call us to do? Anybody? Stand firm. Okay. He doesn't call us to go out and fight, which is pretty cool. You know, I mean, I... You know, when I played football, you put on the uniform and then you had to go play. You know? <laughs> but he goes, put on the uniform, put on the, breath, um, the armor of God, stand firm, and he does call us to do one thing. The what? I'm sorry, Alex? Resist, okay. But he says that before. It's a four-letter word that starts with P. Pray. You know, he calls us to pray. You know, and we're going to talk about um, that in, in just a minute. But when he calls us to stand and we see those characteristics of Christ in us, we have, okay, I'm, I'm not ignorant. I know I'm in a spiritual war. I have the breastplate of righteousness on. I have the rest of the armor on. And then what's our next part of our strategy? Stand firm and pray, okay? And then James 4, 7 and 8 and Tony, I don't even know where I am on my notes, so don't worry about it. You, know, <laughs> you, got, the, you got the last point. That's good. <laughs> he says, do what? Submit. Submit. What does it say that? Did I say James 4, 7, and 8? Oh, good. <laughs> it's Dave, right? Okay. So, Dave, um, it says that submit to your spouse. What does it say there? Submit to God, okay? What is submission? I don't want everybody to do premarital counseling. You know, you always talk and say, well, next week we had in, our, in the church in Fallon, we had, uh, before we perform a marriage, we had six weeks of premarital counseling. Love premarital counseling. Hate marital counseling. So go to Derek for that. <laughs> you know, and uh, I'd always say, and most of them were, were the younger kids, and they'd say, well, next week we're going to talk about the S word. You know, they get all silly and giddy. And they're, Are you really going to talk about that? And go, yeah, submission. And you could just see their face just fall, and they go, really? Yeah. And then I'd ask this question to the, to the uh, um, future wife, the future bride, and I said, would you, you have a problem with submission? Well, I don't want to be a doormat. And I said, that isn't what the word submission means, you know, but uh, would you have a problem if you knew that your future husband would love you more than he loved himself, that his first and only desire is to meet the needs of your life and to love you with all of your heart? Would you have a problem submitting to that? You know, I never had any wife say or potential wife say, no, I would not want that at all, you know. And what submission is, and... and Guys, we're called to submit too. You know, we're not called just to, you know, to uh, walk over our wives. Or we're all called, male and female, to submit ourselves to whom? To God. Okay? Submission is voluntarily, voluntarily, important there, placing ourselves under the authority of another. You know? And so as we voluntarily submit ourselves to God, you know, we're voluntarily putting ourselves under his authority. What kind of authority does God have? It's okay. It's a three-letter word. It starts with A. All authority. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth in uh, John 28, 17. And so all authority, I'm placing myself under the almighty God, the awesome God, the good, good father that we sing about and we talk about. And then in John, I mean, in James 4, he says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, 
and he will flee from you. Why? Because he's so afraid of us? No. He knows we're just, you know, flesh and blood. He knows, though, that when I've placed myself under the authority of God, who goes to the door when Satan comes knocking? God does. And he has no place. He has to flee. He cannot be in the presence of the Almighty God. And so when I place myself under his authority, I'm in the armor, you know, and I'm standing there, and then God does the rest. And then he says in uh, verse 8 of James 4, he says, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. What a beautiful, I mean, the God of all creation, the one who has all the authority, he says, all I desire is for you to come, draw near to me. And when you do, we have his promise, and it's impossible for God to lie, Titus 2, uh, 1, 2 says. It's impossible, he says, and I will draw near to you. Don't believe it when people say, well, you know, God, I just, he left. You know, God didn't leave. We're the one who usually walks away from him. And so as we think of the uh, submitting, we place, voluntarily place ourselves under the authority of, of our Heavenly Father, and then we pray. And I'm convinced, and I, I confess this um, not because I'm proud of it, but uh, I pray more for the church that we planted in Fallon now than when I was in the, the pastor of that church. Oh, yeah, you've gotten old, and that's all you can do. Probably, you know. <laughs> but, you know, I, I've realized, uh, and like Derek said, I, I've been blessed to have uh, a wife that uh, uh, has prayed. She began with Moms in Touch, um, boy, almost 40 years ago, with uh, praying for our children. Our first just turned 40, which made um, her feel old and made me ancient. But uh, uh, it was Moms in Touch. And then it was, you know, grandmas in touch. And now it's, you know, praying for our adult children and the decisions that they make. We never stop praying. And I recognize that that's when God moves. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray. You know, and we begin seeing when we commit ourselves to be men and women of prayer. But I can't do that if I don't have any margins. I don't have time to pray. He says, pray without ceasing. So I'm driving down the road and said, okay, God, keep me safe. I'm going to go fast. You know, because I got to, you know, I mean, seriously, we, we sort of just throw these little prayers. I mean, that's, yeah, that's part of praying without ceasing. But we need to take time to be in prayer with, uh, before our Heavenly Father. And there's so many examples of what God does when people pray. Hudson Taylor, I think, said it the best. He was a 19th century missionary to China. And he said it this way, it is possible to move men towards God by prayer alone. That's a powerful statement. It's possible to move men towards God through prayer alone. And when God sees and hears those prayers, become men and women of prayer. Show your kids what it means to be prayer warriors. Don't just leave it, guys, to, the, to our uh, spouses. Well, they're at home. They don't do anything. You know, I say that facetiously, ladies. I know that it's uh, more than that. You know, it's easy for us to leave and go to work. You know, uh, it's harder to stay home and, and face the issues sometimes. And so we need to recognize that we need to be men and women of prayer. And then we're going to uh, make our last point. It says, God will always bless a marriage lived according to his word. And he, there's lots, so much more there. I mean, uh, we teach this, and it's uh, 16 hours um, at these conferences uh, about marriages and uh, being pastors. But uh, it's all surrounding the word of God. We need to be men and women of the book. We need to spend time in prayer, praying for our, our spouses, praying for our family. We need to find out what it means to be a woman um, that uh, wins her husband without a word. Guys, how's your uh, prayer life? Maybe God isn't answering our prayers because he says in uh, 1 Peter 3 that uh, 
because we haven't been the men that God's called us to be to our spouses. And so we need to know what the book says. And we need to recognize in order to do that, it takes time. You know, uh, it's easy to put a, uh, a podcast. Uh, we, we sort of learned that we're all our grandkids are up in Elko still. And uh, so we pound the pavement a lot. And we just figured out that they had this little thing you push into your, your uh, car and it has a little cord coming out and you can put the podcast onto your um, smartphone and you can play podcasts all the way up to uh, Elko and all the way home. You know, and we just don't listen to Derek, you know, which is great <laughs> because he, you know, it's, it's four hours each way, you know, but um, it's exciting to, to just have the word right there. We are so blessed. We just need to take the time to be um, men and women that look and say, you know, in order to have a godly marriage, I need to go to our God in prayer and trust him. You know, Eric, I mean, Derek had a, a, talking about the song, A Good, Good Father. And we've been teaching through Nehemiah. And Nehemiah's prayer was to a great and awesome God. You know, have you just thought, and, I mean, to me, I just, that just brought me to a place I stopped and go, he's great. Yeah, I know. He's awesome. And what does that word really consist? What does that mean? You know, we sort of throw it out, you know, but he's awesome. This just, and that really means that we go, wow, ah, we're standing in awe. We used to sing a song back in the day, you know, I stand uh, in awe of thee, you know, and that's who we should be in awe of all the time. And when we are, he begins to work in my life so that I can be the husband to Chris. He begins to work in my life so I can be a father to our children. And a grandfather, it's a lot more fun than being a father, <laughs> to, our, to our grandchildren, to be able to do what he wants us to do and to see that he is faithful, that when we um, allow God um, to live in our lives and live it according to his word, we can be sure that he's going to do a great work. Amen? Well, let's pray. Father, I thank you that we have that relationship with you, that our desire is that you would be all that you want to be in us. Father, you indeed are a great and a good, good Father, great and awesome. And so, Father, I pray that as we move into Christmas, that we would recognize that even then, Herod tried to kill the baby Jesus. There's that spiritual war going on, and that we can come recognizing that our only defense, and it's the greatest defense, is to fly to you. And so that's our desire, Father, and that you'd be honored and glorified in our lives this Christmas. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a blessed